Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We're in uh, Matthew 6, and uh, Matthew 6 reminded me, verse 1, of a book called After Heaven. After Heaven is a book written by Robert Woodnow. Robert Woodnow is an American man, and uh, for the last uh, decade or so, he's made it his business to consider the changing landscape of American and Western spirituality. American and a Western spirituality. He said, if you look back over the past 50 years, habits have changed. Organized religion is on the decline, on the decrease. Spirituality is on the increase. This is what he says. There's been a change for an inhabiting model, that's his words, to more of a spiritual self, uh, self-sustaining model. And by that he means, in the past, over the last 50 years, especially uh, up to 20 years ago, people would follow the tradition of their parents. They'd go to a, uh, a place, a synagogue, a mosque, uh, they'd go to a cathedral, they'd go to a temple, and they would go to that location, that locale, that building, to worship God. They would say that would be the place where they would go to worship God. They would um, love the tradition, they would love the model. He calls that the inhabiting model. Somewhere where you go, you follow the tradition that your parents have always ha- held and had, and you go and you worship God in that place. But in the last two decades, the last 20 years, there's been a significant change. People say, I'm spiritual, but I don't like the traditional religious model. I don't need to go to a place. I enjoy prayer. I enjoy connecting with God, but I don't need to go to that place anymore. I don't need the trappings. I don't need the stuff. I don't need the locale. I don't need the buildings. 
I'm going to put on my own religious identity. I'm going to make my own religious model. I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. I pray, but I don't need the trappings. He said that's happened in the West. You could say if you Google, because Google is always true, that this would also be true if you look at the books we're buying. So in 2017, the number of spiritual books from Amazon went up 17%. If you looked last year, 2018, and you put together spiritual and self-help books, that increased by 20%. Roughly 30 million books on self-help and on spirituality and on religion are purchased last year. But many people are saying the same thing. I am spiritual. I have a real spirituality, but don't call me religious. I don't need to go to a place, but I have a personal relationship with a force, with a maker, with someone other than myself. The Bible says real spirituality is not just believing in God. Many people would say that. I believe in God. I believe in a higher force, a higher power. I have a deep personal prayer life. But the Bible says real Spirituality is not even talking to God. It's not just connecting with God or talking with God. Real spirituality, according to the Bible, is not reaching out because you want a relationship with God. I want to know if there is a God who is out there. Real spirituality, according to the Bible, is responding to a living God, the the living God who has spoken. Responding to his initiative, responding to his actions. Real spirituality It's responding to a person, the person of Jesus Christ who's come close to us. Real spirituality is knowing God who comes and impresses his truth upon your heart and mind, who's demonstrated his act on the cross 2,000 years ago. His word comes close to you, it becomes weighty upon you, like the Sermon on the Mount has in the last two months for many of us, this, this avalanche experience of importance and weightiness and significance. And if you listen to the words of Jesus, if God has come into your life, if he's rebooted you, restarted you, renewed you, given you a new heart and a heart of flesh and a new life and new priorities, that is real spirituality about the person of Jesus and the truth of the word of God. And what will that look like? Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and into Matthew 7 that we'll get to sometime later in the year. We're taking our time. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Real spirituality and real clothes. It's not ethereal, it's real, it's manifest, it's concrete, and it affects every part of our life. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying, this is what real mature spirituality looks like. It changes you outwardly, verses 1 to 4. It changes you outwardly as you give to those in need. It changes you upwardly, verse 5 to 15, as you pray. It changes you inwardly, As you fast, it's a picture of self-discipline. It changes you inwardly, upwardly, outwardly when you come into a real living relationship with the person of Jesus Christ by his spirit and through his word. Last week, we looked at the central section, 515, prayer. This week, we're going to be looking at the first and third section. It's a three-part sermon from the lips of Jesus. It's a sermon within a sermon, and it's all to explain verse 1 of chapter 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness, your good deeds before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, this is the principle that I want to spend some time on before we look at the two practical examples. Here's the principle. Jesus is saying, 
live for an audience of one. A Christian is someone who lives for an audience of one. What do I mean? Well, verse 1 says, this is the warning, this is the danger. You can demonstrate your acts for the approval, for the applause, for the voice, for the renown of your friends. Or you can give, you can pray, you can discipline yourself in the inward place for the audience of one. Beware of the danger. And then Jesus gives three examples. Look at uh, verses uh, 2 to 4. He goes uh, negative, then positive. So negative verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. That's the negative, verse 3, positive. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Thought about that last week. Don't congratulate yourself. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then Jesus gives the second example, prayer, verse 5. When you pray, it's not an optional extra. When you pray, don't go to the street corners. Don't work out strategically where you can camp out and where you can project your voice so that you'll get more applause from people as you pray certain words. Don't pray like that. Verse 6, positive. When you pray, go to the quiet place. Then your Father in heaven, he will hear. When you fast, verse 16, negative. When you fast, don't look somber. Don't put ash on your face. Positive. But when you fast, no one should know. You should put oil on your head. Don't do that in our culture because people will know. They say you've got greasy hair and you need to get some uh, different shampoo. But the picture is it's a normal part of life. So don't, don't practice your deeds publicly. It's the importance of the audience of one. Verse 1, this is the key concept that governs these three examples of what Jesus is saying. Don't do your actions, here's the phrase, to be seen by men. To be seen by men. That's the Greek verb from which we get our English word, theatre. So it's this wonderful description that Jesus is using of don't live your life as if you're on the stage. You're not at the Globe on the South Bank of London. You're not in Epsom Playhouse performing to people and going to town with your makeup and with your actions, being as vibrant and as loud as you can, being as exuberant as you can, because you want the applause of men and women. You want the reviews on opening night. That is not how you're to practice your, verse 1, acts of righteousness. Your life is not a stage. If you live like that, if you behave like that, you will receive a reward, but it will only be small and it will only be in the here and now. Don't live, don't live for the audience of many, Jesus is saying. Live for the audience of one. And this repeated word, seen and unseen, reward of man, reward of your Father in heaven who sees all through this chapter. Live for the approval of one. Live for the reward of one. Live for the renown of one. Live for the approval of one. Because you can't have it both ways, says Jesus. All in verse 1. When people are big, God will be small. That's there uh, implicitly in the actions of people who want the renown as money is given, when prayers are said, and when fasting is done publicly, not privately. They're living in their lives as if God is small and as if people are big. And so they want the approval from people. Jesus is calling his disciples to a priority of the inner world. 
ordering themselves with a deep conviction of a God who sees. So wonderful balance to chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Do you remember this a couple of months ago? When Jesus says, you're a new person, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. God has come into your heart and mind. You've been renewed. This is what has to happen. The Beatitudes, if you're to become a Christian, that's a picture of what it means to be a Christian or someone that has become a Christian. When that happens, don't keep this great news to yourself. What you need to do, verses 13 to 16, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so what's the, uh, the message that Jesus is saying? If you're the light of the world, don't hide it under a stand. Don't, it needs to be on a stand. Don't hide it under a bowl. Your light is to be seen and shown to all men and women. There's an inappropriate place for secrecy, says Jesus. Don't hide the light under a bowl. The light is to be given to people for their good. But now, in chapter 6, Jesus gives a balance to say, you can only shine your light brightly if you're attentive to your heavenly Father in private. It's a wonderful balance that Jesus gives. The right type of secrecy. There's the right kind and there's the wrong kind. And in chapter 6, Jesus is saying, be attentive, followers of mine, to the priorities of giving, of prayer, and of self-denial. Because here's a scary thought. Christians, we have a secret life that no one will ever see. Uh, No tape recorder, remember those things? Excuse me. No MP3 player will ever record what we say. Imagine if it did. No uh, camcorder will record, remember those? No camcorder will record. No iPhone will record uh, the actions we do. No books will record what we've done as well. But Jesus is saying, whilst no one will record secret generosity, no one will record how your prayer life perhaps changed a situation that you never knew, the secret of self-control that no one else never knew about, your Father in heaven will see what you do. Because you're living for an audience of one if you're a Christian. Now, that's not always a good thing. I remember my driving test. Do you remember those? If you've been through a driving test, it's an experience you can never forget. I love this picture. It's not quite appropriate, but I couldn't resist it. This poor girl and the driving test and the instructor giving her a lesson with her head in his hands. Um, I remember my driving test uh, vividly because at the start of the day, I had a wash, got a shower. Uh, It's because it was my birthday, probably. I only have a shower once a year. I put on a clean T-shirt. And at the end of my driving test, it was absolutely sodden because I was driving before an audience of one. He had his clipboard. There's a kind of certain disposition. I hope you're not a driving instructor here. There's kind of a certain disposition you need to have. You need to be good at fact uh, finding and fault finding as well. You need to be good with the clipboard. You need to have that, uh, just that demeanor where nothing will amuse you, where you can just put the fear of God into people just by your posture. If you're like that, then go to the job center and see if they need any more driving instructors. That was my guy. And he made me sweat because I was so desperate to pass and be free from the shackles of my parents if only I could find a car. I was living before an audience of one. But it wasn't a healthy picture. And God is certainly not like a heavenly driving inspector. God is our Father nine times in chapter 6. God is gracious and he's compassionate. God is gentle and he's kind. He is our Father in heaven. And he's not a fact finder or a fault finder. But when God is big, people become small. 
it's the other way around. And Jesus is saying, live for an audience of one with an understanding of God who is your Father, who's good and kind, who's compassionate and strong. Because people who live as God being big and people are small, that frees you from two things. I want to meditate on this before we look at money and fasting. When God is big and people are small, that has a huge power to change your motivational inner world. What do I mean? It frees you from being a people pleaser. It frees you from being a people pleaser. I am a people pleaser. I do it in the most remarkably perverse ways. But notice what happens in this chapter. Look at verse 2. People who are religious go to extreme lengths to turn a Godward thing into a humanly centred thing. So verse 2. When you give to the needy, Christian, don't announce it with trumpets. They wanted fanfare. They wanted approval. They were taking the glory and centre away from God as they gave a good gift away, a money that God had given to them anyway, and they'd made it into a perverse thing because they wanted the clap of people. They wanted the approval of men. They were people pleasers, the hypocrites. Look at sentence 16. When you fast, don't look sombre as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. This is a, an inner practice of self-denial so that you can meditate on the goodness of God and pray for his direction. And yet a God-centered activity but it's becoming man-centered. Why? Because hypocrites are love, are people who love to get their approval from people. And nothing has changed. 2,000 years later, our culture is just the same. It's just got more resources in which to please people and more resources to compare to people, and more resources to put people down. People have said, and I think it's David Wells in one of his many helpful books, to said, uh, character has been replaced by personality. Character has been replaced by personality. We live in an age of celebrity where character and virtue is laughed at, where people that can entertain us are applauded and lauded. Celebrity culture, you do everything you can to get your face in the right situation in the right magazine. It's the temptation we all face to keep up with the Joneses. Whether you're a teenager at school and it's the phone, whether you're a teenager or a tweenager or a 20-something, and it's about your shape. It's about body image and style. It's about sporting ability. We do all we can to keep up with the Joneses. And Instagram is just a great tool to beat each other up with and compare in contrast, and look down on other people with. The opinion of others is so important. In verse 2, verse 16, and with prayer as well, we take something that should be God-centered and we use it not to please him, but to gain pleasure from other people. But look at verse 2 again. If you live to gain your approval from other people, it is crippling. Verse 2, you pray, you give rather, and you receive your reward from them. That's all you'll get. You pray, expecting you can twist God's arm, as we thought about last week, with your babbling, with your overflow of words. You'll receive a reward with money and with self-denial and fasting, but don't think that you can twist God's arm by your many words, by your many prayers. That's all the reward that you will get. If you're addicted to people-pleasing, it becomes addictive. It becomes compulsive. It becomes crippling. And what happens when no one notices you for laying the chairs out again? 
What happens when no one notices you for serving with Emmanuel Kids again? What happens if, you, if your husband doesn't notice, if your wife doesn't notice? If you live for that renown and it doesn't come, the approval does not come, it can be crushing. It can become so lonely, it can become overwhelming. But if you know who you are in Christ, when you understand the gospel at a deep motivational level, when you know that God is your father and he approves of you no matter what you do or no matter what you've done, and that's closely linked with the second truth. It frees you from being a hypocrite. It frees you from being a hypocrite. If you are a people pleaser, you are on the fast track to becoming a hypocrite. You're in the fast lane. Because it's so easy for you to be someone in private and someone completely different in public. You pray and you read your Bible. But you only do that once a week on a Sunday. When the door is closed, you're a different person. You speak kindly of people when you look at them face to face. But when you're in a different context, you're very quick to slag them off. You want to be a person of truth, but when you come to the office, the gossip is so tempting to be involved with. But if you understand who you are in Christ, it's the ballast in your soul that makes you someone who's not two-faced, someone who's not blown like a, like a boat being tossed around by the wind and the waves. You can be the same person, the same character, the same values, because you understand not your identity is shaped by whether you get approval from men or women, but your approval comes from an audience of one. That's the principle that uh, underlines these three practices of giving, of prayer, and of fasting. Living for an audience of one. And so let's look at verses one to four again. Giving for an audience of one. What does it mean, if that's the principle, living for an audience of one, what does it mean to give for an audience of one? What does it mean to give for an audience of one? Notice verse two. Notice verse 3, not the first word in each sentence, but the second. Verse 2, verse 3, what's the second word in? When. When you give to those in need. That means that this is not an optional extra. Every Christian person will give sacrificially, whether you are on the breadline, whether you receive a salary, whether all the money you have is a student loan, whether you have a pension, whether you're on benefits, no matter how much you give, you will give out of a conviction of all the goodness that God has entrusted to you. You will give. There's seasons in life when you can give more. There's seasons in life when it needs to be less. But these are temporary periods because the heart disposition of a Christian is someone who gives generously with an open hand to those in need. You give creatively. You give generously. You give self-sacrificially. But also often, if you're like me, giving comes last when it should come first. It's interesting where Jesus puts it, isn't it? Jesus could say prayer, fasting, money. But Jesus puts money up front. I wonder why that is. Because it's so easy for it to become off what we have at the end of the month rather than a standing order at the beginning of the month. We're not talking about quantities. That's about situations. That's about what God has entrusted to you. But the heart disposition can be exactly the same. If all you've got is 10 quid at the end of the month, or if you're a millionaire, you can have the same heart, different resources. If you're not yet a Christian, can I remind you that God does not want your money? You don't win God by giving generously. 
God wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants your trust. He doesn't want your money. That only follows if he's won your heart. So friends, let me ask you, when was the last time you reviewed your giving? You're giving to those in need. If we think more broadly, it isn't just giving to the needy, it's giving to those spiritually needy in the New Testament. You might know as a church, we said in January, we're seeking to up our uh, regular giving month by month because we're ambitious about what we want to do for the gospel in this location and nationally and the, the partnerships we want to have nationally and internationally as well. We can't do that without generous giving. This is for members only in this local church. But friends, when was the last time you reviewed your giving? Can you give more? Can you be more generous? Because we give to the audience of one and for his kingdom to grow. We entrust it to responsible people. I do not know, and I'm thankful for that, I don't know how much people give. There's one person who does in the church, and that's completely appropriate. But we give, says Jesus, not as an optional extra. When you give. We don't need a fanfare. We entrust all the resources that God has given to us back to someone who can, someone who's got a vision, someone who's got responsibility, someone where there's safe practices and uh, transparency in place. And it's our conviction that's the local church. Friends, what comes first, your comfort or the kingdom? What comes first, God's priorities or ours? Are you giving to an audience of one? I've done that quickly because I want to get to something that we don't speak about very often. Do you fast to an audience of one? Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I'm 43 years old. I've been to church since I was zero. Um, I've been to a few churches, and I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on fasting. Uh, It's about 3,500 sermons, if not a few more. I don't think I've ever had a message on fasting. I wonder why that is. I think people, Christians, are confused about it. I think people um, don't want to speak about it at risk of offending people and they're looking forward to their Sunday lunch. I think it's been uh, hijacked by many traditions that it's not helpful to associate with. But as Christians, we can think of fasting as an optional extra. We can think about it as an aesthetic, a kind of a self-deprecating principle of a a monastic uh, age. But it's interesting to learn, as I've done the last couple of weeks, that the early church practiced fasting on a Wednesday and a Friday. Our good old friend Martin Luther fasted weekly, as did Calvin. He said he fasted continuously. I'm not sure about that. Jonathan Edwards, uh, John Wesley, they fasted weekly for revival. And then you've got other people who fasted, like Michelangelo. I don't think he was a Christian. I don't know. He fasted as he painted that wonderful work of the Sistine Chapel. And then Handel fasted as he composed in 23, 22 days, the Messiah. Fasting, whether you're a Christian or not, is actually on the increase. It has great benefits for a a healthy society and a good uh, practice for eating. And so the number of books, if you just Google on Amazon, that are the fasting diet and and having having to miss a meal uh, now and then, it's on the increase. 
part of a healthy, balanced lifestyle. But here's the problem if we just want to assign it to a bygone age. As with verse 2, as with verse 5, verse 16 says, when you fast, not if. So for us just to strike it from the Bible is impossible. We shouldn't be doing that, so we need to think about it carefully. In these verses, Jesus is not talking necessarily just about the merit of fasting. He's comparing it and contrasting it, as he's done with money and prayer, with people that are taking it and it's becoming farcical. So Luke 18, it refers to the the hypocrite who would fast twice a week, not because he wanted to get closer to God, but because he thought that he could twist God's arm by doing it. This practice of verse 16, 17, dressing up in a somber way, marking your face, perhaps with ash or coal, so people could see your external righteousness. It turns fasting from a spiritual force for good into a farce. It becomes laughable. So what is it? Let's start there. What is fasting? Fasting for Christians is like prayer with your whole body. It's my favourite phrase of the week of study on fasting. Fasting is like prayer, but with your whole body. It's part of a Christian discipline that says no to self and yes to God. It's part of a spiritual discipline that expresses a deep self not a self-reliance, but a deep God-reliance. And that's perhaps why it's so foreign to the Western world. It's a physical way of saying, I want to live before an audience of one, and I want to control my physical needs and desires for a limited time. Fasting shows a dependency on God. It shows a hunger for his direction and help. It shows a, a hunger for real food. Whatever you have for Sunday lunch today, think about fasting. I'm sure you might. Whether it's a takeaway of pizza, whether it's something you prepared yesterday or this morning, fasting is very much absent, it appears, in the Western church. It's become hijacked, and perhaps we need to get it back out of the hands of the legalistic uh, experience and put it back into gospel hands. But it's a way of saying, you, Father, are more important even than the food I eat. It is like prayer for your whole body. If we go back to the Old Testament, we can see David fasting because he wants to know more of who God is. Esther is also someone who fasts. Fasting with the Old Testament uh, trajectories, Leviticus 23 is, on the Day of Atonement, every Jew would fast as a sign of dependency and longing for God. The fast is in Acts 27 verse 9. It's still going on. The fast is referring to, from the lips of Paul, the Day of Atonement. But why is it, in a culture where no one wanted to hide it in the Old Testament, when it comes to the New Testament, Jesus' disciples stick out like a sore thumb as ones who don't fast. And they're kind of told off for fasting. Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast and John's do? And he explains, well, that's because I'm here and nobody fasts when the bridegroom is here. It's only twice in the New Testament that you actually read that fasting happens. It's there in Acts 13 and 14. It's there in the early church, where there's a big decision that needs to be made in uh, Acts 14. Elders need to be appointed there to be sent out. Um, Rather, uh, elders are appointed in the local church to prayer and fasting to discern God's will. It's there in Acts 13, where uh, the church sends out Barnabas on a missionary journey, and they're, they're dependent on God for it and his blessing for the future direction of the mission. And so they fast and they pray. Prayer and fasting is normally hand and glove together. 
And so maybe if you're convicted about the, the warrant of fasting, not just to lose pounds, not just to improve your healthy lifestyle, but because the Lord Jesus commands it, how do you find the balance between the default mode of the human heart being one of legalism and the freedom we have in Christ and the obligation we have because Jesus says when you fast, where's the balance? If you need medication to have with food, should you fast? Probably not. If you're pregnant, if you're expecting a baby, should you fast? Well, no, I don't think that's appropriate at that time. But Jesus is saying when you give to the needy, when you pray and when you fast, how do we put these two things together? Maybe you could start uh, with intentionally missing a meal. Because, not because you've forgotten to pack your lunch, but because you want to give that time over to carefully discerning God's will for a specific situation. You realise you can't do it by yourself, and so you, you want to skip a meal intentionally, deliberately, so that you can pray. Perhaps it would be a TV fast. Now, there's a good idea. Someone said the average American watches 70 hours of TV a month. You can read the whole Bible in about 68 hours. You need to be a quick reader, but you take the point. When was the last time you decided not to watch the goggle box because you wanted to do something that would spiritually edify your soul? It's a TV fast. Here is Jesus saying, Will you cultivate helpful practices in the quiet place where no one will see, in the private place where no one will record what you say? Will you live before the audience of one? We need to take fasting seriously. I've been very convicted about it. But at the same time, I remember my own heart. That if ever you ask me, hey, have you started to fast yet? I'll say no. Because verse 17 says, you won't be able to see if I have started to fast because I should look exactly the same as if I wasn't. It's between me and God. It's not about legalism. It's about liberty that we have in Christ. But do we have a hunger, especially through prayer, to seek the will of our Father? Do we have a hunger to know more of God? When was the last time have you ever tried to seek God deliberately, intentionally, when was the last time you spent more than five minutes to pray to God? What about carving out some time deliberately, intentionally to seek God's face, knowing the freedom we have in Christ, knowing the obligation we have to follow Christ's commands? The Jesus Storybook Bible is a wonderful resource for every Christian. And this is the meditation it has on Genesis 11 that came to uh, my mind when it came to fasting. I mean, fasting just sounds like another another ladder that we can climb. In Genesis 11, there is a ladder that uh, the men and women of the world build to God. The people of the earth come together fearing that they will never have a name for themselves, longing for other people to think well of them, just like the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 6. They say, let us build a tower for ourselves. We can build it from the earth to God. It can be like a stairway to heaven. We'll be able to look down on people and they can look up on us. We'll be famous, we'll be safe, we'll be like God. They were trying to live by themselves. They were trying to live for themselves and they were trying to live without God. They were people pleasers, just like Matthew 6. But the Jesus Storybook Bible says this, but God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plans. God knew 
however high they reached, however hard they tried, they could never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase. They needed a rescuer. Because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase. The way back to heaven was a person. People could never reach up to heaven. So heaven would have to come down to them. And one day it would. Jesus says, real spirituality is a man or woman who has a commitment to give to the needy. Real spirituality is someone who prays to God knowing that they have a Father in heaven because of Jesus. Real spirituality is someone who takes communion with God seriously. And so they fast. But let's be careful. Verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. In other words, live for an audience of one. Let's pray.